This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have my good friend Spencer Sunshine, and we're going to have a kind of a experimental conversation. This is our first show that we've done in about six months. And so wanted to do a show with somebody who's really smart, whose work I follow and begin to examine or re-examine or re-enter the examination of white nationalism, white supremacy, and white power in the United States. And so we're going to do that with my guest today, Spencer. Hi, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Of course, of course. So I know this is going to be a really fundamental question, but I want to start at the most basic level. And that is, how do we define white nationalism or what goes into our definition of white nationalism? And is that term, do we separate that term out from concepts of supremacy and of white power? Or let's just start there. How do we define white nationalism? Yeah, that's a slippery question. I did my, I wrote my dissertation about 10 years ago now. And a lot of it revolved around questions of taxonomy and political movements, after which I became completely adverse to talking about that subject at all. But as it goes, you may forget taxonomy or whatever else, but it won't forget you. So for many years, because I've been doing this work, for almost 20 years and full-time since 2013, like you get caught where you have to talk about it in some way. And so I've struggled with what term to use and also do some of these terms, they mean somewhat different things. And they so the dominant term being used for these movements, and we should talk about these or this movement, has changed over the years in the 80s and 90s, the term white power was used a lot. That term only comes around in 1967, and it fades out maybe in the by the early aughts or something. For a long time, I did use white nationalism because I was looking for a catch-all term that covered a bunch of different things. Um, a lot of people call these movements white supremacist movements. I was very interested in studying specifically separatist currents for a long time, uh, especially in the late aughts and early teens. And I wanted to distinguish the two. So I made a distinction between white separatism and white supremacy. And then I put them all under the master category of white nationalism. But over the years, I've abandoned that because for a few reasons, one of them is that white nationalists became a term that emerged out of the movement itself in an attempt to make it look more mainstream. It's also sometimes a term used by the more to identify the more moderate elements of the movement. And the term just in general, white supremacy has, I became convinced white separatism, although it, white the separatists can act in significantly different ways than other white supremacists slash nationalists, that they should be just considered a subset because who would be a separatist if they really didn't have a problem or if they didn't think they were superior than other racial groups, right? It doesn't make sense. And in the 80s, and sometimes these groups, this is just maybe a tactical difference. It's not an ideological difference. So I've moved away from using the term white nationalism and we get caught with the term white supremacy. And it's the same with white nationalism. It gets used in two different ways. One are with these self-conscious organized groups that want to, and I think here comes our real definition, they want to uh, maintain or increase white uh, political, social, cultural, and economic power and self-consciously do that. And so there's organized white supremacists, Tom Metzger, Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazis, whoever's the dominant intellectual patriot front. There aren't a lot of dominant intellectuals right now. And people use the term white supremacist in this case to refer to them, but it also gets used in a way by academics in particular or people interested in opposing uh, racial oppression, including in particular anti-blackness in a much broader way. It does, of course, incorporate 
these self-conscious organized racist groups, but it covers all kinds of cultural and political and economic activities, even to these very minute things, microaggressions, things that practically everyone in the society might be implicated in, including a number of Black people. So we use them both, and that juggles them and mixes them up more. White nationalism is the same thing. White nationalist might be a David Duke, might be Richard Spencer, but it also might refer to some like general thing of the U.S. being explicitly, or in this case, implicitly a white nation that people need to assimilate into whiteness. So a lot of these terms are very fuzzy. I particularly at this point would almost rather use the term racialist to refer to people, it gets away from these very broad notions of white supremacy, to talk about people who are really thinking about race, white people who are thinking about race first, but then that's what's watering the term down. So I moved it back to white supremacy. That's like a very clear term. People have a negative reading of it. They should have a negative reading of it. And at the end of the day, it really describes who and what they are. There's also an additional issue here in which some White supremacists are not white nationalists. There is a distinction between people who want like America or the United States to be a white country and people who look for sometimes called white pride worldwide, uh, an alliance and a unity of white people wherever they exist, South Africa and Europe, Canada and Australian stuff. And that's not a white nationalism unless you're thinking in ethno-nationalism. But so that's like a, a, a global racial identity. So there's all kinds of these little things and they do different things. The Pan-Aryans who I was just talking about are different than like white separatists or different than like United States white nationalists. But that's a long answer to your question. I, I You ran it by me earlier and I had to sit down and think about it for a while. So that's where I stand. I stick with the white supremacist. That's where I stand on it, at least right now. No, that's interesting because I usually come at it from the angle of a historian and something that kind of really has baffled me or has is something that I noodle on a lot, which is a lot of these movements don't have an explicit definition of white. Like how do you get to the concept of white nationalism if you're not even defining white? So I think uh, in my my sixth library card energy if I remember correctly, it's only, I think, the second clan that goes out of its way and says being white means Protestant, not from Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And when we come to the modern iteration of, of this milieu, of this movement, does that is that troublesome to them? Do they think about what is white and what is not? Or is it simply, I'm light-skinned, and then there's people of color over here, whatever? Like, what is that process of thinking about whiteness or uh, defining whiteness within the movement? There's definitely an active discussion about that. I see this movement as really mostly a post-war movement or the way that we experience it as a post-war movement for a variety of reasons. Now, one of which in, is that these sort of biological notions of white open white supremacy were not necessarily what everyone accepted in the pre-war era, but were a perfectly legitimate um, opinion to hold and national figures held it, right? There was nothing wrong with that. And after the war, it became really pretty much a, it was limited to the South, right? And then after, and then completely discredited. So people, this sort of white supremacist being in the minority, being written out of the mainstream, and then eventually taking a some of them taking a revolutionary approach is a fairly modern thing, right? It's within whatever this is, 80 years now. It was, for example, your right to raise the thing, the issue of the Klan in the 20s being it was anti-Catholic, uh, anti-Jewish, it went to Protestants. And that was a very different than we conceive of white now. But there was this idea of white, and there has been this idea of white in the country since the late 1600s. It's an argument since Bacon's Rebellion. It's the argument that Ted Allen makes. And so when the Klan was doing that, like I'm a little unclear, people draw the line directly back to the Klan of the 1920s and even back to the 1860s, but I'm unclear that they were talking about the same thing that we're talking about now. For example, the American Nazi Party only, they had a discussion, they were founded in 1958, 1959, depending on how you're counting. And they had to have a discussion about whether the party was going to be an Aryan party and exclude some of these elements, or was it going to be a white party? 
And this, I think this discussion was even in the later 60s. George Lincoln Rockwell, who was their tin pot fewer, eventually had to make this decision over opposition within the party that it was going to be white. And so they pivoted very strongly to it being white as opposed to Aryan. Today, obviously, white is the operative category for white supremacists, but they have a lot of debate about who that encompasses. And I went into this, I wrote an article a couple months ago with, with my comrade Isaac called Nazis of Color. And we go into partly in that article, it's on Unicorn Riot, about what white means, because some of the people, some of the Nazis who are people of color fit into this notion, certain white supremacist notion of white. A good example of this is the white supremacist who really are thinking about Aryan being the operative category. But Aryans aren't necessarily all Europeans. Aryans can include Iranians or do include Iranians, some of the Brahmin class in India, and sometimes even Tibetans. So that's a very different notion here. Some people, like one popular idea today about white is that if you look white and skin color in a sort of like the way your face in particular looks is a very American thing. In some ways, in other countries, uh, this kind of identity is very linguistically defined or or other notions. If you go to Europe, they're like, oh, yeah, you Americans are really into like skin tone and like to a lesser extent facial features. That's how you define this white identity. So a lot of white supremacists are like, not all. If you look white, if you sound white, if you act white, and if you identify as white, then we'll accept you as white. Some of this has also been spurred by all the genetic testing now, where frankly, most people have some mixture in their background, even if they seem totally 100% white, right? And they end up being, have Sudanese background or, or whatever it is. So at some point you have to like, it, it, it's got to be some sort of mostly, mostly white. And this happens with all, anyone who tries to create these hard lines about identity. Usually it's a rule of three generations, four generations, because at some point everybody is, many people are mixed depending on how far you go back there, or how specific your identity is. So there definitely is, to sum up, there definitely is a live discussion within uh, white supremacist groups about who constitutes whites. For example, are Turks white, ethnic Turks, are Uzbekis white, the guy who founded Iron March, the very important web discussion board that Adam Waffen Division and a bunch of other super militant group, neo-Nazi groups came out of. He's Uzbeki, right? Generally, and he's rather dark skinned from the picture I saw. Generally not a guy who would be considered white. And on the other hand, you get like Japanese, ultra-nationalist and neo-Nazi fascist Japanese who most white supremacists in the United States have no problem accepting them as legitimate comrades in their world. So yeah, there's a lively discussion and it depends on who you ask and there's different like strains of thought about it. So within the discussion, what are the kind of, are there lines to, that can be crossed or not crossed? Are there boundaries within this discussion? I, I know this sounds like it's nitpicking in minutia, but it, it just really fascinates me because it's like the in-group is just, it almost seems like what you're saying is they're defining the in-group based on vibes. Oh, you're light-skinned enough, or are saying the right memes or whatever. But within this debate or within this discussion, where are the lines and what are the boundaries in it? First off, don't most Americans define race by vibes? It's skin color and how are you acting? So I think that's the white supremacists are in some ways, they are like all things, a product of our culture. And so they reflect it in many ways, even though they or maybe an extreme version to have some difference. Like I said in this discussion, there's uh, arguments, I'm not sure what you mean by lines. I mean, you definitely can't be Black. Latino, depends what kind of Latino, that's definitely pretty fluid. But it's just, like I said, there's these differences. Some people are Pan-Aryanists. Some people are like, if you have any hint of, of being white, I think it's Patriot Front that requires you take like a 23andMe test and send it to them. I think like anything else, there's an internal debate about what the lines of something are. I can tell you within the anarchist milieu, there's a debate about how much interface with the government you can have and still remain an anarchist, right? So I think all movements have this sort of internal discussion around where their boundaries are. Because at some point, you do really leave the movement, right? 
you can't really say you're a white supremacist. And then there's certain things, obviously, you can't do. You can't get elected to Congress. All right, that's like already a dodgy thing. And then start voting for civil rights laws or something. Like at some point, you're going to be over the line, no matter if you say, claim internally, you still adhere to the theory. So I just don't see anything particularly unusual about that. It's, you know, clearly race is a central thing for white supremacists. And then anybody's going to debate about their central issue, right? Because it's a focus for them. So then when we begin to segue into the use of violence and terrorism, how is that discussed in this milieu? How is, let's start with maybe a more fundamental conception. How is violence discussed in this milieu? Is it apocalyptic? What is their conception of how violence is to be used, if any, if ever? What do you think violence is? What do you def- how are you defining violence? Um, that's a, that's actually a good question because again, goes back to being a historian. Like it's something that I've been noodling on a lot because it's okay. The expectation is in our modernity, you're not going to have like a Confederacy style of violence, right? You're not going to have two armies meeting on a battlefield. So then I said, okay, what about the terroristic violence of the first clan? Okay. That's actually happening. That's more realistic. And then Something that really threw me for a loop and still throws me to the loop is lynching, like the rise and peak of kind of lynching from the end of Reconstruction to about 1930. You don't really see branded groups. You don't really see the Klan. It's like a communal style of violence. And it's just, okay, that's interesting. That's another form of violence. So then flash forward to our period, it's how do these actors think about it? Is it this kind of revolutionary style of we're going to become like the Confederacy, we're going to withdraw from the United States and hopefully overthrow the United States? Or are they hoping for more of a more of a distributed model, lynching or or communal violence in that style, or even more lone wolf, quote unquote, lone wolf, it's an individual who's going out and committing um, the violence. So that's, it's something that I, as a researcher, I really think about it. I think, okay, how do they discuss it? How do they think about it within the movement itself? Let's, my, I guess my question is, do you consider things like street brawls violence? Huh, that's a, that's actually a good point. Yeah, let's, we can include that. Like, I think naturally, like, when we think of violence, the mind goes to death, dismemberment, all that horribleness. But I guess a street brawl. People talk about the Proud Boys as being violent all the time. People talk about terrorism. You'll see definitions of terrorism that are so broad that they're like anyone who uses political power to stop someone else, illegal political acts to stop someone else from expressing their political opinion. Like that's so broad that it could be like doing a nonviolent blockade of some other group's march. That's why I asked. The term violence gets batted around a lot, even to... You're going to punch someone in the face, um, right? Violence against Richard Spencer when he got punched in the face. Um, is it right to punch a Nazi? So there's a bunch of different opinions about, we're talking about lethal violence, right? Which I think is really what you want to get at. Either mass violence or lone wolf acts or some other acts of terrorism. There are different opinions. Like all movements, there's a reformist wing and a, a revolutionary wing amongst the revolutionaries. Sometimes there can really be a split between the people who actively want to use violence and the people who are really going to wait out the end of the system. <clears throat> this is James Mason's bifurcated answer. He says total attack or total dropout. Like the Turner diaries is one of the most popular next to siege. It and siege are the most popular pro-terrorism books, highly venerated within the movement. It's a fantasy about a race war sparked off by a small vanguard, which the eighties group, the order modeled themselves on. There's going to be a, the day of the rope at the end, and they're going to hang the race traders and the Jews, and they're going to drive everyone, black people and everyone out of the country by force. So there is this veneration of mass violence and certainly a a desire to see it. But the examples you give are, were backed by social acceptance. The the early Klan, the violence during reconstruction, 
violence during the lynching period, it wasn't just violence by white supremacist groups. It was by communities. It was something that was accepted. And Klan groups, uh, other white nationalist groups, and there are very few Klan groups left, other racist, racist groups that can't do that now. They're just not backed up by it. And in fact, and I'm almost 50, so I have a different view. People, I think, now who are younger don't realize how much mass racial conflict there really was pretty much running up to the L.A. riots. Like where I grew up in the county next to me was Forsyth County. It was an all-white county. All the Black people had been run out of the county in 1912 after a triple lynching. There was, in 1987, an anti-racist march that was a small one that was driven, despite the fact they're under police protection, was driven back by locals through low-scale violence, throwing rocks, and trying to beat them up. And then, so there was a big anti-racist protest, people coming from Atlanta, but there was also a huge, or rather it was smaller, but a big opposition protest. So we, this is considered the last pro-segregation protest, and it had three to 5,000 people come out in this county that was right outside of Atlanta, is now a suburban county of Atlanta, trying to keep the county all white. There were these big, still huge racial, racial brawls in high schools and stuff were very common. You know, we had in New York City, there was the big Crown Heights riots between the Hasidic Jewish community and the black community. Um, th these things were just very common running up to the LA riots, which was really the huge one at the end of it. But after that, they pretty much stopped. So this sort of, even the violence we talk about now is after the fading of these still relatively recent mass racial conflicts, not mass and reconstruction scale, pretty large scale with thousands or tens of thousands of people involved. But that doesn't, they don't, I don't, the white supremacists today don't think that's coming back anytime soon. They fantasize, I think, largely about the Turner Diaries about creating a separate white, about either creating the United States as an all-white state or creating a break-off separate area. But these are definitely creating the United States as an all-white state and deporting everyone, deporting Black people back to Africa or whatever, driving the Jews out. Sometimes it's interesting. So they're split. Sometimes they want all the Jews to move to Israel, right? Sometimes they want, they're like, no, we can't do that because the Israelis control the United States. But this is a fantasy and they know it's a fantasy. They know they can't do that. They're a small group, which does actually impel some of the terrorist violence. On a smaller scale, do they believe they can break off a part of the country and create an all-white enclave? Like that's a popular idea. The, in the 80s, the most popular part of this was the Pacific Northwest Territorial Imperative, but we keep seeing new versions come up. I think in Maine has been like a popular one lately. And maybe they think they might be able to do that, of course, will require violence. But sometimes they try to shy away from admitting that, like Richard Spencer said there would be at the beginning of the Trump era, there'll be peaceful ethnic cleansing, right? So they may even deny that this will require violence. In terms of terrorism, some, a small amount of the movement advocates it. This is the sort of Adam Waffen division network. Adam Waffen is disbanded, but there's all these splinter groups and there are other groups mostly around the world. And they're a minority of people, but they, like a lot of these radical minorities, express a view that many more people have sympathy to. And so they do believe in promoting murderous violence against people, although very comparatively little has come out of the group itself. But as a whole, within the racist movement, there's constant, constant murders, constant these massacres. We saw a number of them during the Trump period and a couple more recently, the one in Buffalo, the one at the Pittsburgh at a synagogue, the one at the El Paso Walmart that was targeting Latino immigrants. So we have seen like outbursts of that as well as many individual murders, but it it's always something of a scattered thing. Uh, it's it's not like the 80s where people were major leaders like Tom Metzger were promoting a specific tactic of leaderless resistance and lone wolves. Louis Beam from the Klan did the same thing. Actually, Beam and Metzger were actually in the same Klan group at one point, which was David Duke's Klan group in the 70s, the KKKK. But we don't even really see, that's not like a popular strategy that popular figures are promoting. Of course, the idea does float around. 
I think mostly what we see is scattered violence coming out of the movement by individual actors who take it upon themselves, even though there is, of course, a constant discussion about violence, but it's not very focused. I think a lot of this stuff is people fantasizing at night. They're having fantasies of genocide, but they're not in a position to enact them. And then elements keep breaking off the movement and then committing violence on their own. And not that it's a planned strategy the way that lone wolves were supposed to be. I think they just, they're absorbed in the rhetoric of the movement and the movement does attract some unhinged people and they're, it's flooded with weapons because they have a fetish about weapons. So some of them are former military as well. Not that I think makes them more prone, but it just makes them, they're just more familiar with using weapons and probably have less compunction about using them. Sorry, that's not a clean answer, but there is a lot of rhetoric of violence that does pervade the movement, but a lot of it, I think, is unenactable or a fantasy. I want to explore the topic that you mentioned of social acceptance. And you mentioned three figures that are very interesting to me, Duke, Metzger, and Beam. And if I remember correctly, like Duke and Metzger both tried to enter politics. And I think Duke had a fairly successful set of runs in Louisiana. And I think Metzger was successful in San Diego. And then with Beam, he dropped off the face of the earth. But when we talk about social acceptance, how does that play into the thinking of this movement? Are there people, are there figures who are saying, if you take off the hood, if you remove the swastika, if you sideline these fantasies of violence like the Turner Diaries, is there thinking about turning the cause of white supremacy into a political cause that people can vote on and push into power legitimately through democratic process. Yeah, like I said, there's always a a dynamic between the revolutionary and the reformist parts of a movement. And sometimes it acts like a pendulum. People try one, there's energy for one, and then there's energy for the other. White supremacists have, of course, in recent years, if we're talking about after the collapse of the segregationists were in Congress and the Senate through the 60s, the unseating of the Mississippi party is in 64. And then some of them obviously continue. George Wallace's campaign was in 68 and he carried the five Southern states, the segregationist governor, former governor of Alabama. And then people like continued, they were quote, no longer segregationists like Strom Thurmond, I think he was in the Senate till he died at 101 or something. He was there when I was growing up in the South, and he had basically the same views. There have been a number of attempts by white supremacists to enter the national political system. There were always more reformists. There were always parts of the even neo-Nazi movement who sought more legitimacy by watering down their back, watering down what they were going to say or hiding their background. David Duke is one of them. Wills Cardo, who started the Liberty Lobby, is another. He actually had some influence in Washington at one point. His newspaper, The Spotlight, I think at his top, I just looked up this figure, had 300,000 copies. It was being sold, and that's a large number for any kind of publication, especially at the time. In the late 70s and early, and I think topping out in the 1980 election, there was a move of some white supremacists to attempt to gain electoral office. The big neo-Nazi party at the time, the NSWPP, which was the American Nazi party, its former name, ran several candidates. None of them got elected, but some of them did quite well, surprisingly well. The David Dukes group, the 4Ks, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, a lot of the members ran. He, of course, started running for office. He he, uh, had his most success. He'd started, he'd run a number of times for different offices, was in 1989. He was elected a state representative for Louisiana, like in the state Congress. Only one term, though, although he did run for president in other offices and, and did fairly well by any standards. Tom Metzger had been in his organization in the late 70s, and he was one of the people in the 1980 election who did shockingly well, one of the white supremacists. This was the election that Reagan won. This was a big shift to the right in the United States after the new left, after Nixon had to resign. Carter was president. It was this very liberal period in the U.S. And there was a sudden shift to the right. In a more mild example of the way Trump was elected in 2016, and there became the sudden shift to the right. 
1980, um, Metzger, who is a fairly sophisticated political actor, ran for the U.S. congressional seat in Southern California in the Democratic primary. At the time, most white supremacists were still running in the Democratic Party, which had been the party of segregation. And he won the primary. So he became the Democratic candidate for in the 43rd district for, for Congress. He lost the general election. It was still a shock to people. And in 1982, he ran in the primary for Senate. And although he only got like 3% of the vote in the Democratic primary, he got like 76,000 votes. At this point, he's moving out of the Klan into full neo-Nazism. At the same point, Harold Covington, who died recently, another white, longtime white supremacist, ran for attorney general and attorney general primary in North Carolina. And all- This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Also did shockingly well. These were all in the 1980 election. What happens with, I think, a lot of white supremacists, one of their problems, they're clearly pickled people like Nick Fuentes, who clearly want this to happen, right? And he's been very savvy because he's been able to act as a pressure, the Groypers as a pressure group more than like directly running candidates. I think what a lot of white supremacists see is that it's difficult for them to be elected because there's still a taboo against open being in, in the organized white supremacist movement. But the things that they would express, the policies that they would run on are the same policies that someone without that baggage who are Republicans would hold, like Gosser or or somebody like that. Do some of them want to enter the electoral system? Absolutely. Do some of them want a revolution? Absolutely. But that's not unusual for any kind of political movement. And sometimes the more revolutionaries at some point, you can do this in Latin America or something where it's happened a lot with the 60s guerrillas, can enter into the system, but we can't really do that here. So yes, some of them would like to be elected. It is difficult for them to come out of the movement and get elected, but their policies are would not are not would not be so different than a lot of people on the right wing of the Republican Party today who are in power, who are in, in Congress and in other positions. Actually, yeah, I feel like that is correct. Like in, in some ways, it's I think of like Pat Buchanan and his evolution, like in the early 90s, he's this outcast, this weirdo. And then by, I don't I want to say the the 2000s, he's his nationalist rhetoric is more accepted. So I wonder when we talk about this movement and its political influence, are these reformists or these type of folks who are engaging with the government, with the federal government, is the expectation that they're going to be more successful than the revolutionary part of the milieu, part of the movement? The revolutionary part of the movement hasn't been successful, right? That's part of the problem. This is the half of James Mason's formulation, which is the he, the total attacker, total dropout. He was on the he personally was on the total dropout side, and his whole ideology was that Nazis, neo Nazis in particular, he wasn't so much interested in other white supremacists, wouldn't be able to take on the system. Like all the other, he was quite right. He was quite right in a lot of his analysis. He was like, we. Nazis can't organize enough people and all the other political factions are against us and they will use almost any resources they have to squash us. So there has to be some sort of total revolution that will overthrow the system. And this probably will involve the radical left and racial nationalists of different stripes, non-white racial nationalists of different stripes. One of the things he said, and he said, especially after a few years going to siege it by the mid eighties, he's even guerrilla war, not white supremacist guerrilla warfare. It's good, but it's not even going to be able to do that. That is still predicated on the idea that this will act to mobilize enough white people in a political faction. And that's probably not going to happen. And so his idea, he'd been influenced by Charles Manson and Manson's move to death Valley with the family was just hide out and hope that there would be some conflagration or collapse or something that would bring the system down. And then having 
kept their neo-Nazi forces intact, they could then emerge and be victorious in some sort of vague way. He's a little unclear about how that's going to happen. But the real problem, I think, like anyone, is especially violent revolutionary currents appeal to certain people. Often they appeal to them emotionally, but after a while, it's just clear that's not going to happen, right? And this is certainly the case with David Duke. Again, he started out as a neo-Nazi, and I think you know, each year you can even track him. He was looking for a formula, a popular formula that would gain him a following in power. And he just became more and more moderate over the years. It's a little bit forgotten that by the time he got elected as the state rep, his rhetoric sounded fairly moderate, like he dropped some of the opposition to he wasn't like his open racism had receded a bit. He dropped some of the anti-Semitism, which is funny because he's a, a vicious anti-Semite. And other people in the, the white supremacist movement were criticizing him for sounding too much like a Republican. And in fact, a lot of his the dialogues at that point in his career didn't sound so terribly different from Trump's. So yeah, I just think a lot of people enter into these radical movements of any kind. They have their own psychological, emotional reasons for being drawn to the more militant wings. But after a while, if they don't get burned out by the internal dynamics of it, within the white supremacist movement, they're terrible. Like people, there's a lot of people who are really unhinged. There's a, a lot of the murders that you'll see when you see them every year by white supremacists are of other white supremacists. There's an incredible amount of internal violence in that scene, a, a lot of dysfunctional people. A lot of people going to jail all the time. If you're in the radical left, you just don't see these sort of dynamics. You don't see people killing each other in internal feuds. You don't see all these people constantly going to jail for even apolitical things like breaking and entering and drug crimes and murdering your girlfriend or butchering your family. This is all fairly common things amongst white supremacists. So I think people do burn out of the revolutionary wing in particular after a short amount of time because it's just not been successful. People even fetishize the 80s group, The Order, but there hasn't been another group like The Order since the 80s. They had, I can't remember how many people they had, six or 12 people, and they were underground, and they robbed banks, and they murdered a Jewish talk show host they didn't like. But that was, they were caught, I think, in 85. They were smashed, and there hasn't been another group like that. So a lot of the violence does remain, other than individual actor violence, a kind of like hope or fantasy, and then people, I think, burn out of that kind of the wing of the movement because it's not happening. That's really fascinating. It, it almost seems like the violent revolutionary wing is almost destined to either, pardon the hip hop reference, either a case or a casket, right? You're either getting a civil suit pressed against you, or you're getting going to jail, or you're going into a casket. And at the same time, or they, this, leave. Or they, or they leave. leave. They leave that either the movement itself or that wing of the movement. They just get burnt out. And it, it really seems like it's this reformist part of the movement that's really successful. I think in my own mind, in my own writings, I compare the clan, the first clan versus the Harlan court, right? The the clan was successful, but it was the Supreme Court of post-reconstruction that really narrowed down our understanding of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. And I think to myself, is the movement itself, the white supremacist movement, recognizing history? Are they looking at it and saying playing politics is actually more likely to achieve our aims than going the route of blowing up federal buildings or committing mass acts of violence? Is, it, is there a recognition there within the movement? I think there's a pendulum, pendulum swing about... Um, of the movement has the most energy behind it and activists flowing into it. I think Trump has altered some of this. Trump has altered some of this dynamic in the movement. In 2016, almost all white supremacists, not all, but almost all were united in support of him, right? Like the Daily Stormer, most extreme at the point of the neo-Nazis, except Adam Waffen, totally supported him. And of course, the more moderate elements did too. But what happened after a few years is people recognized that he was, at the beginning, they were like, oh, he's one of us. And some of them really thought he was one of them, especially he tweeted out a picture of himself as Pepe the Frog at one point. It really wasn't a clear, it's not even a dog whistle, right? 
But after a while, before the end of his term, a lot of white supremacists realized he wasn't one of them. He, other than him just being a narcissist that was at the end of the day, it was just about him personally and attention to him. He wasn't that committed. He didn't build the wall. He did want people of color to vote for him. He was fine with Jews and supported the right-wing elements in Israel, right? I think at that point, a lot of them realized Trump was their electoral vehicle, right? Like they could, they were part of his coalition very openly until Charlottesville. That was going to be a failed route. You know what I mean? Like they tried it and it ran into its end by backing him. I don't think there's been another, there hasn't been another wave of white supremacists trying to enter electoral politics on their own. During the David Duke period, White supremacists were very open about this. They were trying to train cadre to run for office and stuff. They weren't terribly successful. You don't see that now, right? In fact, you see a bit of a reversion now. This I wrote a bit about this neo-Nazi demonstration in Orlando at the beginning of September, which was something new. It was, it was about 50 people, and a lot of people just, just looks like another white supremacist demonstration if you're not familiar with this, but there hadn't been a... It was like all basically all neo-Nazis. It was people from the Goyim Defense League, which come out more as neo-Nazis, and the Blood Trod, and they were marching under a swastika flag and stuff. And you hadn't actually seen something that ideologically neo-Nazi since before the alt-right era. And to me, and that was a public demonstration, it wasn't like an underground thing like Adam Waffen, and it wasn't like a more muted thing like Patriot Front, who used patriotic imagery, and you don't have, there are of course many neo-Nazis in it, but you don't have to be. It's more like a fascist pan-white supremacist organization. And so I think what you see here is like a move back, actually a move back away from electoral stuff into, into a more traditional militant street demonstrations. With the exception, I think, of the Groypers who the most who have moved done this entryist move and made a niche for themselves on the right wing of the Republican Party. But they've done this by not running for they're very it's very savvy by not running for office and by merely being an internal faction of the Republicans. A much more common thing in Europe. We don't see this so much in the United States, but like in Britain, for example, the Labour Party, and I'm sure the Tories are just filled with all of these well-organized factions and they're totally accepted. It's a totally normal thing. We don't see it so much here. We know there's like a Clintonite faction of the DNC and a more like democratic socialist faction, but there it's much more uh, codified and uh, Fuentes and the Groypers have been very successful with that, but they almost stand alone in that, right? Like they've come out of the alt-right and they've put themselves in that position over there. Whereas the rest of the white supremacists, at least coming out of that movement, have floated more towards the, rad more towards the radical side. Uh, that's how I think what's going on now within their scene so when we talk about the i, I, I hope i'm i was that. i never i don't listen to broadcast or anything so <laughs> i i miss and i got I, I was taught to read by memorizing which of course english is an unphonetic language so i mispronounce all kinds of stuff so it could be either you say groiper i say groiper you say groiper um, let's sort the whole thing out when we talk about their influence how would you characterize it is it like, is it aiming for a a legal outcome? Is it aiming for a political outcome? Or is it more just Fuentes is, is putting on a popular product and a lot of Republicans are listening to it? What is What does that political influence look like? How is it translated into the real world, into action? Yeah, it's the latter. He wants to work as a an influencer, he is working as an influencer inside of the Trumpist faction of the Republican Party, the dominant faction, and wants to move them further to the right. When he has the ear of the, what was the America First faction, right, of, of Gosser and Bobart, Bobert and all of those people, he is like Willis Cardo and to some extent Lyndon LaRouche were fabulously successful by the metric of their own movement. The guy clearly is either himself a national socialist or has strong influences of it, and yet still has this kind of mainstream respectability, I think partly because he commands a following of young people and the Republicans have been very interested that they now have a youthful base, which they never really did. They didn't for a long time. It was very small. 
Uh, and Fuentes is clearly like a kind of charismatic guy for a certain kind of person. I think he's a an idiot dweeb, but then I think Trump is just was a hideous anti. I couldn't think of someone I would be a leader I would be less attracted to or have respect for. And clearly he has his cult. So maybe I'm just a bad, a bad judge of this or the right wing has a different, is attracted to a different thing. I think AOC is brilliant. I'm pretty sure that was a brilliant public speaker and has a great sensibility to how to deliver a message. And I'm pretty sure the Trumpists don't think that. So I think Fuentes is doing exactly what he wants to do, and that's to act as a, a pressure point inside of the Republicans to help try to drive them, drive the base to the right and re- recruit more young people to to their cause. And the right wing of the Republican Party is very interested in that. And I think they understand that their rhetoric and politics and his are really more or less the same, right? He's just a little more explicit about what they are, and they're just a little more muted. So then with this kind of younger generation, you mentioned Bobart. Gosar is pretty old, but like the... the Gosar now. Yeah, but is competence an issue? Like it's, they have all this great influence, but all the people they're winning over are... They're not passing legislation. They're not sending money to districts. They're not putting people on federal seats for judgeships. Mm-hmm. Is there a sort of great influencer, but bad negative outcomes sort of thing going on? Or is there a broader picture happening? That's fair. That definitely is what dis- what defined the the first Trump administration, hopefully the only Trump administration, is that he wasn't very successful about getting policies passed, getting legislation passed, nor did he seem to care very much. And that's the the great threat with DeSantis was that DeSantis is very good at that. And he, he is ideologically motivated. Where for Trump, these were a lot of words. In terms of how successful, I think most of the success, I don't disagree with you that Bobert and the others haven't aren't great. They're not great politicians in the mainstream sense of that term and politicking and getting alliances and introducing bills and stuff. And they're better at grandstanding and talking to the base. But they have the, I think the dominant, they control, they're the dominant, they don't say control, they're the dominant voice of the grassroots base of the Republican Party. They're not going away. And they're clearly part of the massive groundswell at local levels, and in some cases, state levels, Florida, obviously, in which we're seeing successful reaction, shutting down drag shows, and in particular, getting into school boards and banning books, and trans people are legitimately fleeing Florida. Like, I know, I had a friend who's this a lesbian who's a, a professor. She had, she's in STEM and has good skills, and she's just, she just left Florida. She was teaching there. She's like, fuck it, I'm just going to leave. Like, I can. And so there is a true, sometimes people are like, I'm going to move to Canada if Trump's elected, but there is a true exodus out of Florida. We can say they're not terribly successful on the national level, but they are, I think, very successful on the local level. And time will tell what this will produce if Trump does somehow beat these charges or, or and get reelected. That's just going to add a lot of rocket fuel to all of this. And maybe he will get better advisors the next time and be more hardcore about actually affecting government policy. And DeSantis will force him to do that to some extent. Even if DeSantis loses, he will force him to move, I think, into a more traditional mode of of wanting to implement ideological policies. That's interesting that you you frame Boebert at all as reflections of local politics. So so I'm curious, returning to the theme of social acceptance, right? So Boebert at all, they're not passing legislation, but they're creating an atmosphere of permissibility and acceptance and expression of certain things that maybe five years ago, they weren't appropriate to express publicly. I think one of the examples, I think either you mentioned or I just came up with, I don't remember. Five years ago was 2018 and Trump was in power and he could express these things publicly. But it almost seems like there's an uptick of like calling in bomb threats to children's hospitals, protesting at school board meetings. I think there's one article today that was about a Virginia woman every week. She complains about getting a book taken out of the the public school library. So I wonder how much 
how important, maybe returning to the question of how important is social acceptance to pushing the movement forward, to achieving radical and extremist ends? I think I'll tell a little story. In New York, we were doing activism to shut down these mostly skinhead shows, local shows, and the bands were all like half Nazis, right? They were far right bands and they had some amount of involvement with white supremacist politics. And we saw, at one point, we were able to get a club to set a band down, partly on the basis that they were making rock against, there's the older movement, rock against communism, rock against Islam t-shirts. And it was New York City where there's a lot of Muslims. And we're like, this stuff's totally Islamophobic. And it was taboo. There really was a kind of taboo against this kind of open Islamophobia amongst most circles. Obviously, there had long been, especially since 9-11, this strain. And we saw as Trump was running and capturing the base of the, the Republican Party that we could no longer use this complaint to do anything because you couldn't sanction somebody for saying the same thing that the Republican frontrunner was saying very openly, right? So people forget with what you're saying about Bobert and others. I often argue with people about who's president, or at least in the old days, and they'd be like, oh, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican, which is mostly true if you stick to economics, that they're both a party, parties of capitalism. Before there was more of a democratic socialist faction, before the squad and the prominence of Bernie Sanders. But I'd always argue that they set the, the, the tone of the country, right? They help move the country to the left or right, and they help inspire the base. So having these people in national power help inspire the base. But, and it, it, there is a level of social acceptance, I think, like you said, like now you can go disrupt the school board, or now it seems like not, not such a weird thing to go call in a bomb threat to a hospital. But also, and I think more important than that, is it's a big movement. It's a big grassroots movement. It doesn't matter that movement's still a minority. It's a movement with inertia behind it. It's something you can get involved in and participate, and it's winning victories, and there's things you can do. You know what I mean? It's not It's not like I got involved in left-wing politics in the early 90s, and a lot of the people were just these older people, and they didn't really do very much. There wasn't a lot of activism, and it was pretty clear they had a hierarchy, and they weren't really interested in reaching out. And the far right today is not like that at all, right? There's things to do. There's things to be involved with. It's winning victories. It looks like it can get ahead. It has some national power or a lot of national power, depending on how you see it. And I think that's more important. Um, it's more important that, and, and it's a legitimate thing, especially if you're on the right side of the political spectrum. That's, I think, the important thing, or it's a respected thing. And that's more important than like a greater social acceptability. You know what I mean? Because there's plenty of opposition to this stuff too. And this is partly why the country is, the clashes are so tense is, is because the country's divided. Our elections are incredibly close for a, a country with a population of over 350 million. Often the deciding, I think, the deciding factor in the last election was 7 million votes. And it's often closer than that. And it's almost always like that. It's a razor thin who wins is usually like a very thin percentage. So the acceptability is within a certain limit, right? It's within a limit on the right. But I, the, again, the more important thing I think is that it's a, a vibrant movement and, and uh, someone on the right can get involved. Uh, if they wanna get involved in these politics, they can be part of a vibrant movement. There's a place for them and there's things that they can do and things they can win. That's interesting. Like I, I seem to, I remember Carl Rove years ago in an interview and they asked him what his favorite book was and i think he referred to free soil free men right the eric foner book about the development of the republican party and abolition politics in the 19th century and just listening to you talk really reminds me of that right you have this groundswell this ground movement of people whose politics focuses on influence but when they have agency on the political system, it's not necessarily about passing laws, but it's a, it's really about the interpretation of the laws. And it's frightening. It's, it's frightening because it almost seems putting on my history historian hat. It's like the, it's like the latter day Republican party is like the early iteration of the Republican party, but going in the worst way possible. <laughs> 
Yeah, sorry. sorry. I just wanted to do that history, his, historical aside. I just find it so interesting, like how much things are repeating themselves, but at the same time in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't seen the Trumpist, the, the far right, including the Trumpists, is a radical movement. They want a radical change in society, not, not in the economy per se. Some of them go on about international bankers, although Trump certainly didn't do, did extremely little about that and lowered the corporate tax rate. But they really do want a fundamental reconstruction of the social life. And that doesn't necessarily, that's what inspires the grassroots space. It's the first time we've seen such an energetic and large grassroots movement on the right for many years, probably since the segregationist movement. It was a very top-down kind of thing. And, and I think movements that are very radical rarely focus on attempting to build traditional political power. There's a large sense it's almost a cultural movement, right? This is why they're turning towards education, on controlling education. This is a little unusual for them and controlling sexuality, right? These are almost, these are more cultural kind of orientations than they are like Let's go. The Christian right is a, is a quite different in some ways. They're very vanguardist and they're like, let's by hook or crook attain political power and change specific laws that we want to. They have a bigger agenda, but like that part, they're very focused on that, like in a disciplined, almost cadre-ish way. Interesting. So we've been going back and forth for about an hour now, and I think we've covered a lot. So that brings us to the legendary last question, um, <laughs> which is... Before we leave for the day, before we adjourn, uh, give me, the audience, something to think about, something to chew on, something to iterate on. Um, this could be related to your field, to your ideas. It could be a completely, it could be a tangent, but it has, it, the only requirement here is that it has to be something that the audience and I can think about after this conversation is done. So one thing I've been thinking about a lot is what are the best tactics to stop the far right beyond winning elections? Because I'm not, I don't have a zillion dollars to give to a candidate. I'm not, I don't do politics in that kind of way. People who do absolutely, they should figure out how to win elections and be Democrat, be Republicans, be Trumpist Republicans. I think a lot about stuff in grassroots terms about how do we, stop the far-right grassroots? How do we stop their activist base? So I wrote a guide. It's going to be opposite of plugging it almost called 40 Ways to Fight Fascists, Street Legal Tactics for Community Activists. It's available for free. You can just Google it. And a lot of it was based on, a lot of it's, you know, some very practical things that you can do, holding demonstrations and doxing people and identifying their networks and organizing opposition. But a lot of this stuff was modeled or is from, I mean, it's modeled on prior activism from the 70s to the into the aughts, but it's focused against neo-Nazis and to some extent is useful with Proud Boys. The problem is you can't use, and this was from a time in which there really was like, you were either a militant racist, there was a small group in between the Ron Pauls, the paleocons around Pat Buchanan. And then there was the bulk of even conservative, the bulk of the country, including most conservatives who did not want anything to do with violent elements, even with the militias, even the militias were like a kind of touch of death for a long time into in, through the nineties. Now, of course, they're not at all. And so some of these tactics, which are still useful for white supremacists are not useful for moms for liberty you know, are not useful for people who are putting aside someone who's governor or something for these even far-right grassroots groups that are popular, these sort of tactics of social identification and social isolation uh, won't work for them. And so we need to develop a new set of tactics for the more moderate part of the far-right who are able to mobilize more people and are successfully winning things on the local level. 
And I don't think that has happened yet. At best, there are defensive measures like guarding drag show, drag shows that people are trying to shut down. But I think in a broader way, we need to figure out how to, in a simplified form, how to stop a group like Moms for Liberty. How do we stop that on the grassroots level? And that would, I think, is the challenge for today. Powerful words and great insight. That was my guest, Spencer Sunshine. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Yeah, thank you. Can I have a moment for self-capitalism? Sure, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) So I've been doing this work for almost 20 years. I'm not supported by any think tanks or universities or anything. If you like my work, it's all mostly available for free on my website, which is spencersunshine.com, including that guide. I have a Patreon. Please consider supporting me on Patreon. You get a warm, fuzzy feeling and some exclusive content every month. And next year, I'll have a couple books come out. One is on, we've been talking about James Mason's book, Siege. So I have a book, it's called Neo-Nazi Terrorism and Countercultural Fascism, The Origins and Afterlife of James Mason's Siege. And another book that'll be out at the end of 2024 called Looking Left at Antisemitism on the Left and In Between in the United States. Oh, definitely go pick those up. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Of course.